When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the laser? Ask the police. Hello and welcome to the Indie Beat. My name is Christopher, Jason, Bell, and you've tuned in again to the Indie Beat. Thanks for listening. Uh, today we have friend and fellow filmmaker, Andrew Gittimer. How are you, Andrew? I'm fine. Can I call you Andy? Sure. As usual. Um, today, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, your films and I want to get your view of like the scene and filmmaking, like all the indie stuff. We're going to talk about everything under the indie tree. All that juicy <laughs> indie film stuff. Yeah. We'll go gossip. We'll go a little, uh, get a little Hollywood gossipy. elsewhere. We'll go, you know, Hollywood elsewhere. Remember that guy? No. Yeah. We'll, you know we'll, that guy, we'll Jeff do Wells? It. No, I don't. You don't know that guy? I like... God bless you. Yeah, I'm God bless naive. you. You are releasing a web series for ex-lovers only. Can you like pitch it, what's it, what it's about, and all that jazz? Yeah, um, for ex-lovers only is a web series. It's eight episodes. It's 26 minutes. Um, it's about um, this person in her late 20s named Zoe, who is... Uh, Struggling to get her life together, dealing with issues of, I guess, alcohol abuse, <laughs> and uh, and just generally, you know, I'm living an aimless life, not really sure of what she wants to do, or even if she wants to do anything, and the story is sort of about the her and the first girl she ever fell in love with, Joanna, and um, their relationship, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of what it's about. So, if I'm not mistaken, it was, like, sort of a for-hire thing, which I always find interesting because, yeah. I mean, you were doing, like, self-funded stuff, and now things have changed. Now things have changed. Well, so do you want the full story? Do they want the full story? Do you want the full story? Yeah. Uh, we can cut it out if it sucks. Yeah, no, I mean, so, we can always cut it out. But, yeah, <laughs> so, the full story behind Frex Lovers Only, flashback to 2013. Oof. I'm young, I'm naive. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was pretty much only three years ago. But So I, after, after I had written a feature script uh, called Pretty Girls, uh, which was the first thing I had ever written that I could not self-fund. It was like the script was easily 500K to a million dollars, and it was exclusively written to be, like, pitched and not bought in the way that I didn't want to give it up. I wanted to direct it, but it was, like, the idea was that we were trying to try to get a producer to sign on and sort of fundraise and do it that way. And um, me and my production partner, John, and the other people that I work with had never really done that. We typically do, like... Basically, I write things knowing that I can pay for them and that we can sort of keep the thing self-sustaining. But Pretty Girls, I'd written from the perspective of wanting to pitch it. I spent the fall of 2012 pitching. Um, we hit up a bunch of people in New York, and then we actually flew out to L.A. for a week and 
pitched it there. Uh, it was universally uh, passed over uh, by everybody. But uh, some people were really cool about it, and some people weren't. It was a good learning experience, and it was kind of... A lot of people were into it, but just genuinely, you know, they just couldn't really make the money work in terms of the people that they were uh, working with and that kind of stuff. Um, it was, like, too much? It wasn't too much. It was just that the, like, oftentimes there are producers, and then they those producers are in touch with money people, and mm-hmm. then those money people have different interests than the producers. And sometimes those producers are more, like, artistically inclined, and the money people just want, you know, reassurance of payday. It sounds like this thing was going to have, like, top of the line actors wasn't it well that was the goal was that the lead was going to be um like a top of the line actor as you would say (laughs) i I don't know Um, a list but also i'm kind of like i'm not i don't i don't know if i'd call myself like a safe choice and i don't mean that in the way that like i don't that i'm happy with all my work and i you know you know i do what i do or whatever but i guess my what i think about is more like it, the script was very non-traditional structure-wise. It was like, I actually was really, I had just finished a feature that was, I really worked on three-act structure and really building it that way. And then Pretty Girls, I was like, screw this. I just want to do like whatever I want to do. And it had this more like episodic feel to it. And then it also, um, it wasn't, it wasn't non-linear, but it had all these sort of like digressions into different, different things. It was a lot about, um, passive experience like how a movie or a story or listening to a friend of yours or something can sort of inform your decision and sort of shape your life Mm -hmm. and a lot of the responses we got were like you know people want active screenplays they want you know like this bomb is going to go off in 20 minutes and you know we need to get through like two hours and we need to like get through the entire film to hit that climactic moment and the script was very much not that it was definitely more of this sort of what people, I guess, would call European cinema. And the thing that we kept getting back is that it's execution-dependent. That's what people kept saying. And execution-dependent, to me, is, like, the epitaph on the grave of cinema. <laughs> like, like every film should be execution-dependent. Yeah, it's like, it could be good if it's good. Yeah, if it's but... good, but it's like... <laughs> but people wanted things that were, like, going to be a sure thing. Like, even if this movie's terrible, the something about the hook of it is going to sell it anyway and but i thought you know that was based also on like i said earlier the top of the line actor like a vod movie and it's like well it's got these actors so we can definitely make money off of it yeah i think it's that and i think it but i think it's also a genre thing and i think at the time it um like there are certain like horror sci-fi genre things that are much more stable Mm -hmm. i think they were just concerned because honestly it's just like a personal story about a girl who is not even who doesn't really have, like, is sort of figuring out her life, similar to Forex Lovers Only, but the stakes are kind of low, or, like, the stakes are sort of self-imposed. Like, she okay. doesn't have an external force saying, like, you have to change. It's more about her realization of change. I don't know, it's, um... I had some people I really respect read it, and they said they liked it, but they thought that, like, the approach was not necessarily... That it just didn't have that kind of commercial appeal. And I think a lot of it, actually, a good way of thinking of it is, like, trailers... Mm-hmm. And how, like, every trailer is sort of cut the same. And, you know, you can sort of see how, like, most trailers, I think, like, really, they kind of oversell the movie in that they, like, show you what the second act twist is, you know, like, all that kind of stuff. Like, you really can tell what scenes are from the third act, what's going to be the build up. And then this one, it was not as, 
easily concise and uh and really like you know um like i don't think it could be sold in a dumb way i'll put it that way yeah. and i don't know if that wasn't any language anyone specifically used but <laughs> yeah but that's like i think what they that's what they thought they thought yeah. like this is going to be a, like this is a, and, and also the other issue was that it was going to definitely be a festival movie and a lot of producers we approached did not want to deal with that because you know there are, pr- there are producers who know have great relationships with sundance and south by and then there are people that are successful producers, but they've never dealt with a festival release. They don't know any of those people. Mm-hmm. And I think and a lot of a couple of different people were intimidated by that, the idea of having to like fight for this movie in the marketplace and that kind of thing. Like I, I understand why everyone passed on it and I don't feel like they I don't feel like they didn't get I feel some of them definitely didn't get me and I don't feel bad about that, but it was like the people that yeah, exactly. But the people that get me had had legitimate reasons and it wasn't necessarily because they didn't like the movie mm-hmm. it was because of other sort of challenges that they foresaw and the fact that every producer's got like a bunch of people that want to make movies with them and a lot of them have rosters that go into you know three four five years in the future and so it's like you know it's i did also didn't i'm also not a fan of waiting a long time to make something yeah i don't think that's a good idea i mean that's what i like about you you're just like you've done it you and you continue to do it you try to do something like every year and you generally do and I think yeah. that's good because I know a lot of people just end up waiting around and like maybe it'll never happen that's kind of scary yeah I mean 2016 way. was the first year since 2004 that I haven't like been on set directing Trump Trump I blame Donald Trump mostly uh, but I also had a web series come out this year so it's not like I didn't do anything but yeah. uh speaking of that um Okay, so you talked about the project Pretty Girl. So how did that lead into doing this? So on the same note, actually, of trying to produce something every year. So Pretty Girls, we were in the pitch phase for a while. We spent a couple months doing that, trying to contact actors and stuff. And I was getting really annoyed, or not annoyed, but like, I was getting really impatient. Like, I just want to shoot. Like, and that's, and, and, and about, I'd say about half the film we could do on our, on our sort of micro budget scale. But there was other scenes in the other half that were the million dollar, you know, that was required the big budget. So I also work in reality television. It's my day job. And I, I've done some work in development. And in development in reality TV, you make uh, pitch reels or sizzle reels. Um, and so I kind of had the idea in early 2013 that I wanted to make a sizzle reel for Pretty Girls. Um, and basically just shoot, cast a bunch of the roles, shoot the scenes that I know I can shoot and really make something that's like, you know, that this kind of weird script that, uh, something visual that people can connect to the weird script to sort of see my vision on how it can be sold and Mm -hmm. like, and sort of address that trailer problem of like, you know, what's the visual way of sort of selling this thing to people. Yeah. So that sort of leads to Forex Lovers Only because, um, I have a producing partner, John, Jonathan Stromberg, who is, uh, my director of photography and we've always been sort of seeking for a, th- a third producer because I'm the director on set, he's the DP, and then it just we end up doing double duty and ends up being a big problem. Um, so I posted an ad actually for a third producer, and we met um, Allie Esslinger, who is uh, who was our producer on that. I mean, she was like, you know, involved in casting and a lot of creative stuff, and uh, and was like our set producer and all that kind of stuff. And it went well. And Pretty Girls Sizzle Reels online. Anyone can go see it if they want to. Um, but Allie, after that, we sort of, you know, 
we, John and I got ready for the next thing, and Allie actually got accepted into uh, the Dogfish Accelerator, um, which is this Dogfish Features like lab. They wanted to create this accelerator program that was um, similar to like an incubator for web companies or tech companies. Um, so Allie pitched a company called Section Two, which the basic premise is a lesbian content Netflix. Um, and she got into Dogfish, she did that program, and basically she's been developing as a startup and really trying to be, like I said, like a Netflix, like licensing content while also creating original content. Um, and, uh, so basically flash forward to like a little over a year later, Allie, so in Pretty Girls, there is a character named Zoe that's like a supporting character um, who was played in the Sizzle Reel by my friend and frequent collaborator, uh, Genevieve Hudson-Price. And um, Zoe's a gay character. Uh, that's not the only thing about her. <laughs> but it's just, you know, it was that's who, that's who the character is and that was written into the script. Mm-hmm. And so Allie approached me with the idea of what if we did a prequel to Pretty Girls that just focused on that character Zoe, and that and it would be Section Two's like first original series, and so that was really where it started. Like I didn't play, I didn't have this prequel in mind, or wasn't something I was like developing until she sort of approached me with it. And I don't know, I thought it was a cool idea. Like I'm always down to shoot, so it's not like <laughs> DTS. I'm DTS, so uh, you know, it's not like uh, it wasn't a hard sell, and. Yeah. Um, you know, and we sort of shot it over two chunks. Like, the first was at the end of 2014, and then the rest was in the summer of 2015. Yeah, and so it's weird, because it's... For X Lovers Only is, like, a prequel to Pretty Girls, but I haven't actually made Pretty Girls. <laughs> so I guess Pretty Girls is now a sequel to For X Lovers Only. Yeah. Um, but it kind of gives... And I, and I don't really think... The two aren't really tied together in any way, where you don't need to see For X Lovers Only to get... Pretty Girls or vice versa. It's sort of like its own little world. It's its own little world. It's its own little sort of self-contained story. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't really include any of the other characters from Pretty Girls. It's sort of, it's sort of like in Pretty Girls, Zoe is like a really cool person and someone that the protagonist, Eleanor, like really looks up to. And I wanted to make a web series about how Zoe became that cool person. Uh And so it, so to me it was obvious to start with someone whose like life isn't together and then focus on how, how she gets it together basically. What did so. it feel like to do a web series? Like, how much did you have to change? I know mean, you work in reality TV, but this is the first time you've made something, you've directed something that's, you know, sort of a different form. I mean, I did a web series in 2010. Yeah. But it was really different. Um, so, like, after I graduated from school, I did a web series called Ghost Stories. Um, and it was way different in a lot of ways. First off, it was 40 minutes long. Which was, which, I mean, there was no, this was in 2010, and there was no, like, template for web series, for dramatic web series. Wait, like, each episode was 40 minutes? No, the whole, the whole thing total was 40 minutes. Each okay. episode, it was eight episodes, so each episode was, like, about five minutes. Uh-huh. But this was, like, in 2010, there was no dramatic web series, there was no forum for this at all. But we were just like, let's just do it. And it was something I'd been writing with a couple of friends of mine, and the actress was, like, a good friend of mine. So we shot that, and so, like, I had that as a frame of reference, and I and since then I had done a feature and a couple of other shorts. Um, but I, I used that as a frame of reference, and I, I immediately decided that I didn't want it to be 40 minutes, because that was, like, way too long. And we sort of realized that 
the attention span on the internet has had like shrunk in those like four yeah. years and so I don't know I really my sort of approach to it was that I wanted to make eight episodes that range between like two and a half to four and a half minutes and have each thing sort of be its own concept in terms of editing approach and kind of make them all like a little different and I didn't want to like cliffhang each episode necessarily and that kind of thing so I don't know it was really strange because I typically I don't even like get out of bed for anything less than 10 pages (laughs) (laughs) and then and then I was writing like you know a four minute four page scene and or four page episode or something so that was kind of that was different but um was it difficult because you had to be like sort of succinct yeah, it was difficult, and also what was, I should also mention what was difficult about it was that, like, um, we weren't sure it was necessarily all going to come together until, like, the last minute, um, just because the different things going on with Allie's business, like, she didn't know what, basically, we didn't get the green, I hadn't written anything when we got the green light, <laughs> so, um, and I guess I'll say, so I went to uh, Purchase College and the Film Conservatory, and we have this year, sophomore year, um, we have this narrative class that's two semesters. And basically every month you have to produce a scene. Like you have to write, direct, edit. And then like every four weeks you produce a scene. And it, and most of them are not good. <laughs> like obviously all of mine aren't good. Uh, maybe one of them I think I could like watch again, but the rest of them's not good. But it's, it's to get you in this habit of just like outputting things and just not, you know, overthinking it. And so... Um, I was actually kind of excited because by the time we got the green light, we were, you know, getting ready to shoot really soon. And the cast all came together because it was, Jen was obviously going to reprise her role from the Pretty Girl Sizzle Reel. Um, We found another act. We did, John and I just like to do casting sometimes just to like see who's out there. So we had some people in mind for the other roles. And then I kind of just wrote every episode. I had an idea for the arc of the whole thing, but I wrote every episode really quickly and I didn't rewrite any of them. That's not to say that I didn't, like, we didn't rewrite on set and, like, spend a lot of time talking about the material and whether or not, you know, working through some of the issues with it. But I was really interested in the, the approach of just, like, going in, doing one one script, like, shooting it a couple weeks later, and uh, just, like, the kind of immediacy of that. And, um, and it really felt like sophomore scenes again. Like, it really felt like I was getting into that again. But they were better. And, uh, <laughs> and, and like, in a good way. But, um... <laughs> But yeah, so, I don't know, it was a weird process. It's not normally how I work, because uh, normally it's like you write a script and then you spend like two years casting and working on it and all that stuff, and you go through, you know, my feature went through like four or five draft revisions and that kind of stuff, and this was like, you know, sending sides to people a couple of weeks before we were going and that kind of stuff. Well, it's cool because it's it's different. I don't want to say like all of your films are the same, but they all like clearly they're made by the same guy. You know, they have the same voice, same Cohesive. feel. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I know you and I know you really love sci-fi. Can you talk about sci-fi? Sci-fi? Like, yeah. You love sci-fi. You you yeah. want to write or yeah, you, have, you well, have like sci-fi ideas. So I guess I And should... I don't know really where that fits. Yeah. Well, um, well there are also, I don't know. I guess I'd say I'm really into like surrealism. And sci-fi being sort of an extension of surrealism in some ways, or when it's done well, it could be this kind of surrealist metaphor for something going on in the present rather than the future. Um, and um, and I thought about that. So there's an episode, and I don't know. I'm not going to spoil it. Never mind. <laughs> um, but um, you have to watch *Frogs Lovers* only to see what I mean. But um, 
Well, yeah, you've done that because you did that in um, uh, long distance calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like sci-fi surreal stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, dream sequences and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought you liked, like, you love Star Trek. I guess I, I love Star Trek, but I kind of like, I don't know how much that, I guess that sort of enters my work. So I should actually say that during the year that we made um, For X Lovers Only, we were also casting for another short film uh, called The Distance Between uh, the Body and Souls Measured in Light Years, which we called The Distance um, for short. Cake. Cake? You know <laughs> yeah. the band Cake? Yeah, the distance. Yeah. yeah, going the distance. It's exactly it's inspired by Cake, which I love when I was thirteen. And um but yeah, like that's that was about um uh two aliens who are in a relationship for a thousand years and they're on an assignment where they're possessing the bodies of two earth beings and uh the first scene is them breaking up and um and then it's sort of it's this kind of ensemble movie between it covers two aliens and two humans and how all their lives are sort of affected. And it's set in New York, but and you don't really see a lot of sci-fi stuff, but it's, you know, a sci-fi premise. Mm-hmm. The entire time we were making For X Lovers Only, we were casting that film. Okay. And it never, like many things, it never really came together. But I still have the feature somewhere. Are these things that didn't come together, such as that and Pretty Girls, like, on the table still? Oh yeah, they're all on the table. And I've gotten multiple drafts of them. <clears throat> like, um, the distance didn't come together... I don't know, the distance was a, it was an interesting process. I got, like, I got rejections from some of my favorite actors <laughs> uh, yeah. and that kind it's of like stuff. like a badge. Yeah, no, it's like, oh, this person read it and they liked it, but they're passing, but at least they liked it. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and yeah, it just took a long time, and we had a, we had a producer who was helping us with casting, and uh, for various reasons. I mean, it was also one of the things that was different about the distance is that two of the roles were for people who were sort of like in their forties, fifties age range. And it's just not really in the group. Like I'm in my late twenties. It's just really not in the circle of people I hang around with. So it was kind of challenging casting those roles. And eventually for X lovers only when that went into production, it like total, the, it, the distance was totally put on the shelf and it's still something I want to make someday very soon um and it's in play and there's a short film version of it and a feature film version of it but um yeah sci-fi is definitely interesting i don't know it's more to me it's also just about um surrealism i mean i think people call it magical realism now but i just get sort of upset that there aren't filmmakers like fellini and people i mean i guess there's like there are there are some not in america i'll put it that way there's the greek weird wave as they call it yeah, and, like, Sorrentino in Italy is, like, in the great, the great Beauty and stuff is, like, out of, you know, like, he's a lunatic in a good way. And, like, totally channeling, like, that Fellini sort of craziness and, like, every film's a circus. But you just don't see it a lot in American film. I mean, I think it's coming back and there's, like, um, you know, like, Swiss Army Man and um, mm-hmm. that uh, Beast of Southern Wild and things like that. There are things that sort of hint at sort of more surrealist elements and magical realism. But, I don't know. I think you can always go more extreme than that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we've been sort of pulled back, but... Mm. Can you talk more about your, like, adventures casting and in L.A.? Because, you know, I've never really done that. I don't know how one would go about doing that. I kind of just, like, build up 
from like built from the ground up like these little little tiny films so i don't know what that's like at all i don't even know how you do it what were you what was your experience like what did you learn you said oh this fell apart but it was like a learning experience yeah well i guess my experience so like i'm i mean you know john and i are not represented and hint 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 i don't know it's also kind of intentional i gotta because uh we managed to get a lot of stuff without representation mm-hmm. and um, just by embarrassing cold emails and, you know, and, and really like really stretching the network in terms of friends of friends. So when we went to LA in 2012, it was like all the meetings were set up by through friends of friends, like people we knew who were in positions for scripted development or feature films or things like that. Or a couple of them were companies that had other success doing other things in uh, television or graphics and were like looking to start their own like feature film you know uh, program or whatever uh, <laughs> department so I don't know we set up a bunch of meetings um, some of them were with the smaller companies were like really nice and just spent a lot of time chilling and um, we sort of had an equal appreciation for the same kind of stuff um, there was an issue in that Pretty Girls was set in New York and it was like really set in New York like exterior like Lexington and 49th Street you know uh-huh. or like it's yeah, like yeah. we really and like that was a really big part of it and a lot of LA guys were kind of not intimidated but they just sort of like they kind of wanted something more local or something that wasn't as like specifically New York but we're generally pretty cool um, but then we did have one meeting at should I say the company or can I not? I don't care. It's I guess whether I don't you care. care they're they're never going to work with me. So what do I care? They'll never listen to this. They're never going to listen to this. <laughs> well, Atlas Entertainment. So um, I had this one meeting at Atlas Entertainment, and um, which is this company that co-produced uh, a little film uh, not, much, not many people have seen called The Dark Knight. <laughs> and uh, and Man of Steel, the Superman movie. <laughs> Man of Steel. <laughs> Man of Steel's. Um, and so John and I walk into the office with like our printed out script of Pretty Girls and like our feature Past, Present, Future on a DVD. And you walk into this office and everyone's like asking us for like if we want Diet Cokes or mineral waters or whatever. And we just feel weird about not, we just don't, like I'm good. And they wouldn't <laughs> let us be good. Like all the assistants are like really concerned because... I'm sure their bosses think that if I don't go into this meeting with the mineral water that, like, I'm not being taken care of, yeah, you yeah. know? And uh, and we just didn't like that vibe immediately. And and I'm sitting in the waiting room, like, underneath the Man of Steel poster, and I'm just turning to John, like, there, this is going to go very badly. <laughs> like, this is just not going to be good. And it wasn't good. And uh, I don't, I won't name the executive that we talked to, but they ha- they were trying to start, like, an independent film sort of wing of their company but the whole thing was centered around pre-sales and it was basically this idea that like if we can make a genre film and pre-sell it then then we'll have independent films but we're not gonna actually risk we're not gonna actually take a risk on anything uh-huh, yeah um so the one film they had made was like a horror film and the guy just like name dropped the whole time and he showed us this trailer for the film he just produced it was like oh this is so cool and then was really not interested in the pretty girl's pitch at all. Um, but some the meeting kept like going on and on. He just kept like it was a lot of name dropping, I felt. <laughs> and it was and uh and just generally sort of not being interested in like the actual you know, in theme and art and yeah. uh and like story and that kind of stuff. So that was like it was a learning experience in a lot of ways for us because it was like, you know, uh 
you can't just you know sometimes big studio big studios are not interested necessarily i mean we already knew that but now we sort of understood the specifics like we were able to put a face and a company on that experience and it really just made us have more resolve in terms of just like doing things our own way and not really depending on big money or big companies or anything like that that's like what you want to do for the rest of your career yeah i mean um yeah, I mean, someone I know recently said to me that their goal in their career is to be the first American to direct a Star Wars and a James Bond film. Oh, wow. And uh, Which it's also like, yes, <laughs> no, Amer- no American's ever directed a James Bond. I kind of was annoyed that he wanted to take that away from the British. <laughs> you know, like, it, they have James Bond. Yeah. But that kind of, that to me is like the exact opposite <laughs> in terms of like what, you know, like... He asked me the same question, like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I just want to get to a place where I can, like, make films as a job mm-hmm. and, like, continue to make things. And I've got some projects that I'd like to, obviously, I'd like to make in the next 10 years. Beyond that, you know, I hope that in those 10 years I come up with more projects to make. But to me, it's about, like, I don't know. To me, about m- making film as an art and being an artist is having something to say. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like as long as I have stuff I want to say, I'll continue to want making, continue to want want to make films how do you get to that point where like you can quit your job and like only do i don't know ask me you, you <laughs> tell me i don't i don't know i don't know it's hard but i well i think the one thing that i've learned is you know when i was when i was going to film school i would always go see filmmakers talk mm-hmm. they never tell um, you they never tell you but also they don't have any answers and i think that's the thing yeah, it's yeah. like so i'll put it this way my grandfather loves steven spielberg because <laughs> And uh, because he's, like, an old guy, he's 92, and Spielberg to him is just, like, the tops in terms of filmmaking yeah. and career. And a lot of people see Most that. People, yeah, yeah. Most people see that way. And he bought me this biography of Steven Spielberg <laughs> and <laughs> to, like, give me advice on, like, how to break out in the film industry. And, yeah. and I read, I didn't read it, but I did glance at the part of how, because, like, what do I care? Thanks, but uh Pops. It's like, yeah, so... But basically, like, Spielberg, like, walked on to, he was, like, on a studio tour at Universal Studios, and, like, walked off the tour and, like, went on set and just started, like, doing things on set. And they're like, hey, kid, like, what are you doing here? Like, oh, you want a job? And and it's like, you read that you're in 2000s, you know, whatever, last 20 years, and you're just like, he would have, like, if that happened today, he would have been thrown off set and, you know, never to be seen again. It was yeah. a different time in, like, the early, you know, late 60s, early 70s and that kind of stuff. And so it's like... What does Steven Spielberg have to say to a young filmmaker today on how to break out? Like, he doesn't know. Because mm-hmm. his whole thing was, it was a different time. You know, it's like the whole industry was different. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Tarantino and all these guys. Like, even in the early 90s, like, the, the, the whole mood of the industry and what the industry was looking for was completely different. And so it's like, I really, like, I don't think, you can see a lot of filmmakers, they can talk about how they became successful. But ultimately, like, your story, I think, is always going to be different than theirs. And you kind of just have to, like, I don't know, feel it out. I don't know. I mean, I'm not necessarily where I want to be. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but I've sort of been able to become self-sustaining in a way because of just being, uh, I'm just finding a way to do that. And if you really want to make a film and you really want to, like, direct every year and have things on your belt that you, you know, are proud of or whatever, then you got to, like, you just make it work. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that that always used to frustrate me, like, coming out of college. I'd be like, well, I don't know what to do now. Like, how do I do it? And then it's like, I guess the answer is like, oh, just keep doing exactly what you were doing in college. Yeah. 
Um, because, yeah, like I said, like, they don't tell you, but you're right. Like, what would they say? You can't, like, apply, you know, whatever advice they would give, like, to your life because the factors are all different. But I think it's, yeah. like, you have to just keep making stuff. You, like, have to keep working. And yeah. make it good. Don't, like, fuck around. But No, take it seriously. <laughs> but also, you know, um, it just takes time. Like, when you get out of college, especially if you, you know... I don't know, especially if you went to film school, like you, like you know people, you know your professors, you know the kids you went to school with, you might know some kids who graduated years ahead of you that are, you know, uh, out in the industry and doing stuff, but, um, but you really don't know people in a significant way in terms of like people in the industry that are going to help you and people that are going to champion your work and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And honestly, and like I have, and I'm lucky in that I do now and you know, after doing this for, uh many years like have people that like are really helpful and you know you and i both know people who work at festivals who are programmers like you you build those relationships over time but what they don't tell you in film school is that like all of those relationships will not happen the first year out like it literally takes like five six seven years and maybe even more to like actually get to know those people and to be able to like and if they stick around too and if they stick around yeah, and honestly, like, be just continuing to make things and put put things in the world, like, also helps those people sort of gravitate towards you. Because if you always have something, it's sort of like the plague of the people that only produce, that wait six years to make their film because they want the perfect sort of scenario to happen. Yeah. And it's like, the perfect scenario never happens. People are will be happier that you just made it Yeah. than, than hearing about it for five years, you know? Yeah. No, I don't want to, like, because that's just, like, a different way to do it. I don't mean to knock someone who's, like, taking a long time to do it, and then they do it. Or maybe whatever, they move on, they're like, this isn't for me. But uh, I was always under the impression, like, I'm a really, really slow learner. So, like, I mm-hmm. need to keep doing it to, like, hone my craft or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was always like, alright, the more you put out, like, you know, you're proud of it. You you put it out there, what that means is, like, you know, submit it to festivals or whatever, put it online, like, get people to watch it. And then it's just more, the more you have, the more ways that people can, like, find you or stumble upon you or something yeah. like that. No, yeah, and it's one thing if you have, like, one film that, I mean, I also know a lot of people who graduated from film school and made one film, and then to this day still ride that film as, like, I'm a filmmaker because I made a <laughs> film nine years ago, and I also am under the philosophy that you're not a fil- you're not an artist unless you're continuing to make art. Mm-hmm. If you like, you can stop for short periods of time, but like unless you are always thinking about the next thing, then you then you were an artist. You're not art. You aren't art. You aren't an artist. And um, and yeah, I think like and building those relationships also helps when you have like multiple projects and you can you can. You know, like my, um, I have a relationship with the Knoxville Film Festival. Um, it used to be the Secret City Film Festival. Like, um, this is in Knoxville, Tennessee, like many years ago, um, or I think five or six years ago. And so my student film, my thesis right out of college got accepted there. And I won Best Student Film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't go to the festival. <laughs> Which was, like, a huge regret. So I found out I got Best Student Film by, like, waking up to an email that said I won. Yeah, which is nice. But that, yeah. All right. So advice from our sorry asses is, like, if you get into a festival, no matter what it is, you should probably go. You should go. I mean, I was, like, Um, I had a stupid, It costs money, but Yeah, but I had a stupid job that, like, was not worth me. Like, I, I thought, like, well, I can't miss work. And then I stayed home. And I, like, regret that. Yeah. But, 
But I got in at the student level, and I, like, built sort of an email relationship with Keith McDaniel, who's, like, the programmer there, the head, the head cheese. And Secret City turned into the head biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> and so Secret City then turned into the Knoxville Film Festival and joined forces with this group called Dogwood Arts, which is, like, a big arts foundation in East Tennessee. And they've become a bigger deal. And... Uh, and that relationship with Keith was really important. I, my first feature premiered there in uh, 2014. I've had another short film premiere there uh, in 2015 called Long Distance Calling. And um, yeah, so it was like, it, it took time to develop, I guess is what I'm saying. But um, but Keith, but it was good to always be going back to Keith and saying, I have this new project. Yeah. And it sort of kept our relationship building and this is actually the first year i haven't gone in the last i've went 14 15 didn't go this year he's pissed he's pissed i'm upset <laughs> because uh knoxville is like i don't know it's 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 a it's a growing festival each year it gets like a lot better and yeah. um and keith actually i think does a great job in terms of programming a lot of eclectic things in a place that isn't necessarily always receptive to certain things mm. and he sort of he really has a his priorities straight in terms of like artistic integrity being the like primary motivator behind what he programs. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be vague because I want to hear whatever, okay. how, whatever direction you take it in. What's your take on the indie scene? I guess like I'll say indie scene, but you know, if you want to like narrow it down to New York or whatever, I'll say in one word, the indie scene is crowded. Mm. And I think there are a lot of people that, um, there's a lot of people that call themselves filmmakers and consider themselves filmmakers, and I think it just it's crowded. I mean, I don't want to say you're not a filmmaker, but there's a there's uh, there's kind of an artistic leap that's uh, there's like between differences between people, and I think like um, you know generally there's a lot of people. There's more people today. You know, I was thinking about this in relation to like so how did Quentin Tarantino get started? It's like well he was. You know, Reservoir Dogs, he had the Sundance Lab, and Reservoir Dogs uh, got in there, and then he eventually premiered in Sundance and everything. And, you know, I don't know what the numbers are this year, but I think last year Sundance had 16,000 features apply. Yeah. And this year, and in 1990 or 1989, like, that was not the case. Like, it was significantly less by thousands. And um, and I do think that that's a problem, and I do think that it, the... Um, I don't know, I just think, I think you have a lot of different people working at a lot of different levels, and it's really hard to tell, it's really hard to find the needle in that haystack, and I think that's, like, a big problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, there are better ways of doing that than, we're, that we're not necessarily doing. Um, sometimes it's the wrong needle, too. Sometimes, oftentimes it's the wrong <laughs> needle, and, um, and oftentimes it's just the more famous needle. It's a bullshit needle. The unfortunate thing about indie is that indie isn't really independent anymore. Indie is more of a genre of mainstream filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think people, you know, uh, you know, there are a lot of films that it's that screen at major festivals and national festivals and on that level that it's like, would this film really have had no distribution if it wasn't for this festival? Um, and I think in a lot of ways festivals aren't really doing their jobs the major festivals, um, which are national ones, are not really doing their jobs in really promoting like new artistic talent or new artistic voices. And I normally wouldn't have a problem with that because it's like you do you and whatever. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but like but they put them but in all their literature in all of their 
you know, in the way they present themselves and all of their keynote speeches and things like that, they present themselves as like, these are the new artistic voices. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel that way. And I, and I know of a lot of my peers, especially in New York, who, um, and New York is sort of different than LA because, you know, Sundance, for instance, their office is located in Los Angeles. Like, then they tend to favor uh, productions that are Los Angeles based over New York based. And I think New York kind of is, it's a little bit of an island, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way, and just in terms of its relationship to independent film. But um, but I do think that a lot of the national programmers don't really fulfill the promise of what their festivals are doing by promoting, you know, I mean, they've got their own issues. They have to, you know, they have to put asses in seats and that kind of stuff. And so they're thinking, they're thinking about that, but it's also like, I think a lot of those asses would be filled regardless of what was screening. Well, yeah, that's always my thing where it's like, and I'm not like trying to knock anybody, but like to me, and I've heard this before, you know, whatever, it's Sundance. It's like the biggest festival uh, one of the biggest festivals in the world, so it's like I feel like whatever they do, they're going to fill seats. Like they're gonna sell out. Oh yeah. Like whatever they. There put are rich on. people who just go. They don't know what's playing. They get tickets to things. They don't know what the film is. They're yeah. just Sundance is like going to you know, it's like it's a vacation for people, and that's like primarily I think where they get all their money. That end as like an industry as like a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um. But, yeah, and I mean, I think the broader issue I have with that isn't that, like, oh, I'm excluded from Sundance or whatever, because um, I honestly don't really care that much. But, but it'd be uh, cool. It'd be cool, but, you know, what? I, but I'd also be cool to do it without them. Well, and it's also, like, not to derail you, but it's also just, like, I don't think you should get too upset because just because you got in, congrats, you know, but it doesn't, that's not the end. Like, you yeah. might not get anything else after that. Like, there are a lot of bad things that could still happen. So, yes, yeah, celebrate and be happy. But if you're upset that you didn't get in, it's kind of like, you know, whatever. Like, keep I mean, going. 60, like, they have to pick something like 60 films out of 16,000. Like, you were never getting in. Like, yeah, the yeah. numbers the numbers don't make sense. And But, but also, I think the bigger issue, and this is, like, my sort of long-term concern. And when I graduated from school, I had this very, like immediate sort of dread of like uh you know cinema viewership is down everything is everyone's struggling to make the finances of the film industry work and i think a lot of that has to do with just the banality and the uh homogenousness of films these days and i think that there are a lot there are people who are making super like i think american art film really suffers in this current climate and I think, and while that, and while people might say, well, American art film was never a bulk of, you know, the money in the film industry. Like, I think American art film was a big influencer on that industry and things that, and on the industry as a whole. And we're not really competitive in that space at all anymore, especially when you look at like what's going on in Mexico, what's going on in Italy, what's going on in Southeast Asia. Like there's, there, you know, there, and France stills like makes great. It's just like other other countries really promote that kind of stuff and we haven't and I think it's like I think it contributes to the sort of like continual decline each year in sales because I think when people are going out to decide what they want to do or how they want to spend their money if they're looking at something that has a that feels indie in a way of like that indie is now a genre that has a feeling it's that like little miss sunshine that kind of like quirky film or whatever 
they're now thinking that that's generic or that that's not or that that's banal or something and um the kind of really inspiring filmmakers like the Cassavetes and the Kubricks and all those kind of people like I feel like they still I feel like they exist but they but unless they've got like Kristen Stewart in their film it's like really hard for them to get exposure and I think that the and and I think we sort of suffer everyone suffers for that <laughs> and Sundance is also and Sundance and other festivals I don't want to just bash on Sundance is like kind not of really, responsible not really bashing not really to be bashing clear guys we're not no gonna... i don't want to give them a hard time because it's because it's a whole it's a whole industry thing and i would kind of love for someone to have like some sort of like bernie sanders like revolution in film to say like enough and really pick films and filmmakers that are like on the avant-garde of pushing american cinema forward and like uh and american art cinema and really like reestablishing what the voice of that is because we've had a couple of bubbles like we've had the 70s were a big bubble the 90s were a big bubble and real and you could argue mumblecore was even though i really think that now that we're sort of out of that period the influence of that is not very lasting mm-hmm. and um i think that uh yeah i think i think it's like you know it's either we're going to have a, the new thing or it's going to be really hard for cinema to like continue to justify it's like high high cost as like a medium and that kind of stuff i don't mean to be bleak about it because <laughs> to me it's not bleak to me it's like you go out and make the thing that you want to see in the world yeah like i get upset if i like not even personally because i have you know we have friends that make films who are like oh that's really good mm-hmm. like why isn't that doing better and I'll see, like, uh, an indie movie that, like, has been talked about. Like, I see it on film Twitter or whatever. Like, people talking about mm-hmm. it. Or it plays this festival. got this award or whatever. And it's, like, sometimes it's, like, that was okay. Sometimes it's bad. And I'm kind of, like, that's really annoying. But I don't really get depressed about that anymore. I mean, I do sometimes. But mostly I'm just, like, okay, well, all that means is, like, that's not really a high bar to clear. So... You know, let's go do it. Let's like yeah. try and do it. Like I don't get sad about it too much anymore because it should be inspiring. It should be like making me like fuck. I could do that. Like you know, I think like the French New Wave is a good example of this because if you really look at so the whole generation of French New Wave filmmakers are all like the post-war generation. They all were alive and in, in their you know in their formative years teenage years during like nazi occupied france and you know a whole the whole generation that sort of preceded them you know basically like fell off because of the nazi occupation and you know and things like that and you know when they were going into the late 50s and a lot of those people were sort of entering their 20s it was like they were in love with renoir and they were in love with hitchcock and things that they were seeing and they just didn't feel like that was like, at France in the time, which was still, like, a country in recovery, they didn't have that kind of stuff. And it was, like, a lot of what Godard and Truffaut and, like, all those people were sort of channeling was, like, see, making the films that they wanted... Making the films that they wanted be, they wanted to define French film. And um, and I think in a similar way, like, American filmmakers should... I'm, like, I'm in, I'm in favor of New Waves, wherever <laughs> they are, be they in France or Southeast Asia or wherever. Yeah. I think America could definitely use one, and I think we're kind of overdue if you think about how every sort of 20 years in cinema, there's like a, there's a generation of filmmakers that kind of like steps above it. Um, But, you know, someone can argue that like, well, you know, you mentioned Mumblecore, but 
I feel like someone can like group people together and be like, oh, that was a wave. We had that. Or like, yeah. we have that now or something like that. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I mean, I, you can. I mean, like, and also like French New Wave was not something that they, was not something that like Godard and Truffaut, like it was defined after them or wasn't, or they didn't come up, they didn't come up with that catchphrase and that wasn't like the plan or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do though with just like the, Making something that isn't homogenous, making something that like really stands out compared to the rest of what's on the landscape, and I think there are a lot of filmmakers that do do those things, but I think that that's like a different. That's still the older generation, you know. Like, and people still, people still like, for instance, Paul Thomas Anderson, which everyone loves for good reasons. Like, um, everyone's so excited about what his next film's going to be, you know, uh, and they're really interested to see like what he has to say. And, like, whatever subject matter he's going to tackle. Like, he's making a new film about the fashion industry in the 50s in England. And I'm like, I don't know anything about that or, like, why that's important. But people are going to go see it anyway because they're like, well, obviously if this subject was important to him, this is something he wanted to say. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. And I think that's sort of what we're missing with our generation is, like, filmmakers who people, like, it's as much about their opinion and their perspective as it is about what they're doing. And having, like, a different perspective on that kind of stuff. And I think that, that that's more what I guess I'm getting at, is that it's not just about telling sort of, like, a well-crafted, like, relationship drama. It's about, like, what is different about this relationship drama than the history of cinema. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it might be kind of a big task to ask everyone <laughs> to compare themselves to the history of cinema, but but also we're a generation that has access to the history of cinema in a way that no other generation did. So it's, I think even more important that we're sort of thinking in those, like in the, you know, 1894 till now sort Mm -hmm. of standards. All right. So let's wrap this up. It's been a great convo. Thank you for joining me, Andy. No problem. My pleasure. You're the man, dude. Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay, so please check out For Ex Lovers Only. It is embedded in this article. And check out Andy's other work too. I'll post that in the article and, you know, just read it for the proof of that. So thanks again for coming on. My name is Christopher Jason Bell, and you've been listening to The Indie Beat. We are part of the Playlist Podcast Network. Please, if you loved us and loved this show, please leave a comment and say that you did love it didn't don't bother um also check out the other shows on the playlist podcast network because they're all fucking dope and thanks please listen and be aware for new episodes coming out uh i appreciate you tuning in farewell goodbye now